0: Well, good morning. I think I know just about everybody in this room, um, but for those of us who I haven't gotten to meet yet, my name is Jordan Moore. Um, I'm one of our community group leaders, um, and this morning it's my privilege to share a message from John 15. So if you want to turn there now, John 15, 1 through 11 is where we're going to hang out this morning, um, and Ms. Janice is going to do our reading this morning. So, so a
1: reading from his word, John 15.
0: Oh, yeah, please stand. Still a newbie, sorry.
1: Jesus is speaking, and he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the reading of God's word.
0: Thanks be to God.
1: Father, thank you for the privilege of having our own copies of your word in our own language. And Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who do not yet have this gift Mm. that they will soon. Lord, thank you for speaking to us, for coming and living among us and leaving this and then your spirit within us so that we can understand your heart and know how to live. May you bless Jordan as he brings the message you have given him. And may we have hearts
0: attentive to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. And thank you, Miss Janice. So this week, we're picking up where Thomas left off. Um, Last week in John 14, he walked us through. We got to talk about how we experience peace through the Holy Spirit. So if you were reading through this and you're wondering, where's the Holy Spirit? Last week, Thomas went through that. Um, Before we really dive in, I kind of want to spend a little bit of time setting the stage, giving us a little context for what's happening here and so here's where we're at um, in John's recording of what's going on in the story. Jesus is in his very final hours with his disciples. Um, he's hours away from Judas betraying him with a kiss and his arrest. He's hours away from being abandoned and isolated and falsely accused and mocked and beaten and whipped. And he's hours away from an excruciating and humiliating death on a Roman cross. This is where we're at. What's remarkable is that we know, because we have this, that Jesus knows exactly what's coming. Down to the last detail, he knows exactly what's about to happen. None of the events of this night are going to catch Jesus off guard. In fact, this is exactly why, we, why he came in the first place. He came for these final moments. He came to experience depths of darkness and humiliation that really none of us can fathom. He came into this world to save sinners by his death. And in John 15, we have Jesus spending his final harrowing moments preparing his disciples to experience the sheer emotional whiplash of his death and burial and resurrection and ascension. He's preparing them. He's not only speaking to his disciples in this moment here, but he's speaking to his disciples across all time. We hear the Bible Um, We read the Bible and we hear God speak. This book here is not an archaic, dead collection of texts. It's actually as alive and as active as the one who spoke it himself, God in heaven. So as we consider the words of Jesus here in John 15, we consider Jesus' words to us today as well. And as they're departing from where they were at the end of 14, um, they're, either, they're either listening to Jesus as they're preparing to leave or they're actually on their way to Gethsemane. Um, but Jesus is speaking to his disciples once more. All but Judas, whom he is at this point, sent away. Pointed out to be a traitor. He gave them the morsel of bread and he sent him away. So Jesus is speaking to the 11 and he gives them this illustration. Let's look at 1. 1 through 6. by identifying himself as the true vine and the father as the vine dresser. Vineyards and grapevines were all over the place in ancient Israel. It would have been a very clear, plain message to the disciples, but it goes deeper for ancient Jews. The nation of Israel actually thought that they were God's vine, they thought of themselves as God's vineyard, and there was good reason for that we see in several Old Testament passages where the Lord actually refers to Israel as the vineyard of the Lord, like Isaiah 5, where we read of a vineyard being planted by the Lord with love and care, but instead of growing good grapes, the vineyard grew wild and produced inedible fruit. And verse 7 of Isaiah 5 reads this, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And here in John 15, what Jesus is doing is he's making a stark contrast. He's making a contrast between himself and Old Testament Israel. Now they are no longer to relate to God through their nationality and religious heritage. They go through Jesus, the promised Messiah, the true vine. Jesus is also making a stark contrast to how many people today think about relating to God. Jesus is not a vine of several other life-nourishing Of several other possible um, life-nourishing, life-giving vines, but he is the only true vine. What's interesting is that there's six other I am statements in John's gospel. Jesus says, I am the bread of life, the light of the world. I am the door to the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the true in the life. We just sang about that. But here in John 15, he adds a qualifier and only here. I am the true vine, all Other vines are just false. You cannot find life sustaining sap in any other vine, whether that vine is your nationality or your family or your kids, identity, sexuality, career, business, or health. These things cannot give us everlasting purpose and joy. Only Jesus can. Jesus, the true vine. And we see further. In this illustration, that Jesus identifies God the Father as the vine dresser and his disciples as the branches. Jesus says explicitly here, I am the vine, and you, his disciples, are the branches. And as the vine dresser, God the Father, we see him doing two things. He has two works. Let's look at verse two again. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the Father, takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So the Father is removing dead false branches, and he's pruning living fruit-bearing branches, ensuring that they bear more fruit. Now this talk from Jesus about the Father removing non-fruit-bearing branches feels a little unsettling, and honestly it should. It's a sobering reality that Jesus is giving us. This is a vital category, a vital reality, I would argue, that Christians need to have as they move through life as a follower of Jesus. We must understand what Jesus is saying here. When Jesus is referring to the Father's work of removing branches that do not bear fruit, he is not talking about abiding true Christians. Jesus labors to teach us this, that once we are his, we are forever his. And John 6, 37, teaches, uh, Jesus teaches that all the, that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And we see again in John 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Those who are in Christ are eternally secure. The branches that God removes are like Judas Iscariot, who was attached to Jesus for three years, counted among the chosen 12, and yet he was found to be false and betrayed Christ. Or like the many so-called disciples of John 6, 66, that though they called themselves disciples and they walked with Jesus for a time, the scripture tells us that there came a point where they turned away from Jesus and walked with him no longer. They hang around Jesus without a genuine, life-giving relationship with him. In Matthew 7, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out many demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. And here's why. Here's who they are. You workers of lawlessness. This is not pleasant. It's not a pleasant reality. And remember, but remember, remember that while Jesus knows about Judas and his plan, he's totally in control. The disciples don't know. Yet, at least they don't know fully what's going on with Judas. And think about how disorienting it would be to do work ministry work like this with Judas for three years just to learn that he is not one of you. There are those who will only associate with Christ superficially, who call themselves followers, but are in truth false disciples and dead branches. And we see here in this illustration the eternal consequences of those who do not abide in Christ. In verse 6, he tells us that they are thrown away like a branch, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Jesus, in his love and in his grace, is preparing his disciples. He's preparing them and he's preparing us, his disciples, for this inevitable experience that followers of Jesus will face. Jesus loves us enough to tell us what is real, even when the truth is a very hard truth. We see the Father's second work here is a work of pruning. The divine vine dresser prunes true fruit-bearing branches so that they might bear more fruit. Pruning means to, be, to clean up the branch, cut away dead parts, maximize fruitfulness. Now, here's an honest question. We can do honest questions in here. It's fine. Do you ever feel like you're not a very good Christian? I mean, I, there we go. I got one person. Thanks, Nathan. <laughs> like, I'm just, I'm just, I'm bad at this. I'm not good at being like Christ. I can't believe I'm still dealing with this, or I've been so impatient lately, or why am I getting so angry so quickly? Still, I don't know. And then there are moments, darker moments, where you feel like you you don't even know if you will really change. Here's the good news. Here's the word. The vine dresser never slumbers. He never tires of his pruning work. There may be seasons of the Christian life that feel barren, that feel fruitless. This is real. This is real. But our spiritual progress is not rooted in what we feel. It's, in, it's rooted in what God has done, what he's doing, and what he's going to do. Our fruit bearing is rooted, first and foremost, in the work of the vine dresser. Not in how well you performed this last week. Philippians 1 tells us that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the last day. God is ruthlessly determined to shape you into something more beautiful than you are right now. He's more determined than you are. He is determined to make you like his son Jesus. God is not content to allow you to remain in the vine bearing little fruit, He is relentless in your growth in Christ. Sometimes this pruning is painful. Sometimes it is in persecution. Sometimes it is in trials of various kinds, like James says, but it is always for our good and for the glory of the Father. One of the deepest beauties of the Christian walk is that in Christ, we can look hardship in the face. We can feel it Okay, we're not Stoics. We can feel hardship. And at the same time, we can stand on the truth that God, our Father, is working. Right? Nothing is wasted for the Christian. Nothing. The difficulty you are going through right now may well be an act of kindness on your God's part. The Father loves you. And he's committed to you. And he will never cease in you growing into more than you are right now and growing into Christ. Disciples bear fruit because God will not stop until they do. Let's move on. Let's go to verse four. This really, verse four is the imperative for this whole passage. This is the vital point. Jesus tells us, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in In me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The command here is for us to abide in Christ. This is what Jesus tells his followers to do. He says, Abide in me. We should abide in him. And we see that the natural byproduct of abiding in Christ is bearing fruit. It's what happens. Just like a branch won't bear fruit if it's not in the vine, we won't bear fruit if we're not in Christ. Jesus says that apart from him, we can't do anything. Now, this doesn't mean that people who don't follow Christ literally cannot do anything. Like, we all can see that, right? Right? What it means is that apart from Christ, we can't do anything of eternal significance. We can't even bring, this is the important part, we can't bring glory to the Father apart from Christ. It is our abiding in Christ that we actually bring glory to the Father. This is the true ending of our fruit bearing. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. To glorify God is to make much of him. That's what that means, essentially. The fruit is not the final goal here. There is a step further and it is significant, we are to abide in Christ so that we bear fruit, proving to be his disciples to the world, and in doing so, we bring glory to the Father. That's the end of our fruit bearing. So if you're a pragmatist, like me, the question then becomes at this point, well, okay, fine, how do I abide, right? Like, okay, how do I, how do, I do this? What does it mean to abide in Christ when it comes to us, the branches That's what this text comes down to, abiding Christ. So how? How do I do this work? How do I abide? And I think we're a little out of time, so let's go ahead and just play. No, we get three hints. We get three hints from the text about what it means to abide in Christ. We see three things coursing between the vine and the branch. Christ's words, his love, and his joy. Let's look at the first hint. It's in 7. Verse 7. Where it says, Jesus says, if, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Yeah. Here we see words flowing between the vine and the branch. Christ's words to us and then in us and then our words to him in prayer. So to abide in Christ is to know and trust in all that Jesus says. Do we see that? We live in a time, Miss Janice alluded to this, we did not talk about this. It's the Holy Spirit, okay? She said, she prayed that people would have the Bible, have the word. Sometimes we take this for granted. Okay, we live in a time where we carry the words of our Lord around in our pockets in 15 different translations, right? Read them every day. Read them, tuck them away in your heart through memorization. This is no small task, okay? This is no small task to let Jesus' words abide in us. It takes effort. It takes intentionality. Hour by hour, day by day, Satan is working to manipulate this world and to entice our flesh in order to get us over to distraction or get us over to disbelief about what Jesus has said. And when you are tempted... Focus your attention on Jesus' warnings against sin. When When you see a headline that unsettles you, remember that our good shepherd has told us that he is with us until the end of the age. When you're angry or bitter or you're holding a grudge against someone, remember how much Christ has told us he has forgiven us. This requires us to know what Jesus says and for us to trust it. Abide in Christ by knowing and trusting his words and enjoy the fruit of answered prayer. We abide in him, his words in us, and then our hearts are guarded and transformed to reflect his heart. And then we pray and we ask and we're answered. The second hint from the text on what it means to abide in Christ is found in verses 9 and 10. Let's go there. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. Here we see Christ's love moving between vine and branch. The Father loves Christ, excuse me, and Christ loves us with the same love. We abide in his love for us obeying his commandments. Our obedience to him does not earn us love from him. Our obedience is evidence of our love for him. Y'all hear that? We don't earn love from Christ by obeying Christ. We demonstrate our love for Christ through our obedience, through our joyful obedience. To abide in Christ is to demonstrate our love to him through joyful obedience to his commands. Christ actually, Christ demonstrates this to us at the end of chapter 14. Just a page over, look at 14 verses 30 and 31. There he says, I will no longer, he's speaking to his disciples, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. And here it is. But I do as the Father has commanded me. Why? So that the world may know that I love the Father. For anyone to claim to love Jesus and yet live in a life of persistent, willful disobedience to Jesus is insanity. It doesn't make any sense. And I realize that's kind of an inflammatory statement. Well, what's interesting is that it's not an inflammatory statement with any other earthly relationship. If I were to say, I love my wife, Chelsea, I love her, yet all of you watched me not go home to her, not help her with the kids, not listen to her, not do as she has asked me to do, y'all wouldn't think that I loved my wife at all. I'd have about eight of you in my back pocket knocking me over the head saying, what are you doing? To say you follow Jesus and not follow what he says is to show that you do not abide in him. To abide in Christ is to demonstrate our love, demonstrate our love to the world through joyful obedience. Finally, the third hint we get from the text on what it means to abide in Christ is found in verse 11. Let's go there. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. Here we see the joy of Christ himself flowing between vine and branch. What's interesting is that this verse about joy, Christ's eternal joy, follows a verse about obedience. And we often think about joy and obedience as mutually exclusive, right? But here we find them linked. You cannot separate them. Joy actually comes through obedience to Christ, This does not mean that Christians will never experience pain. Don't hear what I'm not saying. That's my favorite Nathanism. Don't hear what I'm not saying. This does not mean that Christians will never experience pain. This does not mean that the Christian life is easy and unhindered. It's quite the opposite. Jesus promises we will be persecuted for his name. Christ's joy in us means that our lives as Christians are ultimately marked by a confidence in Christ, that Christ is greater and more satisfying than anything this world has to offer. This is true joy. Christ's joy in us means that our joy is as sure and as steady and immovable as Christ is eternal. Okay? To abide in Christ is to receive Christ's inexhaustible joy. Christ has an infinite storehouse of joy because he is infinite and to abide in Christ is to inherit it. You all see that? Christ is unshakable and unmovable and when when we abide in Christ's joy, nothing can steal that from us because no one can take us from Christ. You won't find anything like that in the world. So in conclusion, let's sum it up this way. We bring glory to the Father as we abide in Christ. As we are nourished by his words, and as we experience his love, we respond in prayer and in joyful obedience, and in doing so, demonstrate ourselves uh, to be his disciples to the world. As we abide in Christ, his joy becomes our joy, and we reap a harvest of joy that is unending and unshakable. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your work in our lives, which never ceases. You never sleep and you love us so dearly. I pray that you would help us to abide in your son, Jesus. Help us to come to you and treasure your words, Lord to love what you have to say, and then to obey out of a true, uh, joyful obedience or teach us in the coming years what it means to be one of yours and help us to bear fruit so that the world can see the joy and the love that there is to be experienced in a life lived for you, Jesus. Christ, it is in your name that I pray. Amen.